Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related topics. From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends, we hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. Welcome to the next edition of this podcast. I am joined by two of my dearest friends this time, which is very lovely indeed. Um, I'm not unaccustomed to sitting around a table with them, actually, as it happens. We have the legendary Craig Harper and the bombastic Jake Berger. Mr. Bombastic, the first time I've been called that, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But you are very fantastic. We're here mostly to talk about gin, but as always, um, I love it when we go off on a little bit of a tangent and talk about anything to do with bars, drinks, cocktails, uh, and all that good stuff. So um, let's get straight into it. What makes a good gin? Tell me. Well, I recently had the privilege of uh, of judging um, one of the the gin award mm-hmm. uh, situations, and I think we tried about four hundred gins in the space of two days. Wow! And it was well into the second day before we got to. It was all divided by category, and it was well into the, the second day before we got to London Dry Gin. By which point, we were all like, when we tried our first London Dry Gin, we're like. Wow, a gin <laughs> back in the room. <laughs> so I would say, you know, the the regulations that protect London dry gin are uh, perhaps the things that make a good gin. Mm. It's interesting now that we can even have a gin competition and it becomes categorised, right? I mean, it used to just be the case that gin was gin, and pretty much everything was labelled London dry gin, and whether or not it conformed to that or not, they were just gins, and gin was gin. But yeah, right. Yeah, when when I started bartending back in what nineteen ninety two. I think we we carried, you know, if you went to a, uh, most bars would carry Gordon's or Tanqueray, um, and you know, if you're in a fancy bar, it might have two or three other options, yeah. um, but certainly nobody had twenty gins or even, you know, I don't think there were twenty gins, gins you could no. name. Like if you had five gins, you were a gin specialist back then, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's like you go into a, even a small local pub and it's not unusual to see 10 different gins and perhaps a number of different tonic waters on offer as well, equaling maybe 100 different gin and tonic combinations. Well, right? One of my uh, one of my friends uh, works for a, uh, a gin brand slightly further north than, than I do. Uh, by his latest reckoning, he reckoned there were 1,700 gins in the UK market now. Wow, 1,700. We've got expressions we've, and distilleries. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got tasting notes for 1,600 at wow. work. So that's how many we know are definitely be, have asked to be included on a menu. Well, there's an expectation because you work in gin that you kind of are aware of everything around available, but it is impossible. In fact, um, on that, it's probably a good idea to sort of talk a little bit about that part of your job, Jake. You, you're what do you call it? A gin instructor? Gin, gin instructor. <laughs> so we didn't we didn't portmanteau those two words, but we did portmanteau <laughs> gin and institute to create the gin institute. So this is where our guests come and. Join us um, for about three hours at a time. We have a, a lovely little museum um, full of some gin dating back right away to the kind of beginning of bottled gin, really, and some amazing old books and various other bits of uh, gin paraphernalia, which we use to tell gin's long, rich, mostly miserable history. <laughs> uh, uh, which, which we're really looking forward to diving into <laughs> very shortly. You know, people, people love the, uh, the, 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 the miserable side of things. Quite often, you know, I'll get halfway through the story and my guests will be like, this is really miserable. I'm like, so is the first half of a, of a Disney film. You know, you've got to get <laughs> through the, the happy ending, to get exactly, to the happy yeah. ending, right? Uh, and then after we've taught them history, we, we talk more about the production of gin and, uh, and then we get them to make their own gin. Um, 
And it's been, you know, phenomenal success. The history side of things is the story I enjoy telling the most because, you know, it's really the history of England. Yeah. You know, I understand the chronology of England's history and England's monarchs more through the the background of my gin knowledge than through anything else, really. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know everyone's desperate to hear the miserable history of gin. We will come (laughs) on to that very shortly, I promise. But, um, Craig, it's worth introducing what you do as well. Um, I am the fever tree guy. So essentially, literally, I, I, that is how you are known in the industry. Basically, it's yeah. on my business cards, uh, fever tree and stuff. We just touched at the start there about how broad the gin market is now, and you know how that sort of idea of London Dry is getting increasingly diluted and watered down. Well, there wasn't a law when I first started in this that London Dry wasn't protected at all. Well, it was, but very vaguely. Mm. And do you remember in about mid sort of 2005, six, something like that, that's when the law changed and a gin brand I was actually working for, which had class itself as London Dry, could no longer do so. Mm. Yeah. So it has been more protected. It, it, it felt to me like there, there was a sort of tipping point where brands up to about, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, any new gin brand felt compelled to classify themselves as a London Dry because it was just the norm. And consumers recognised it. And consumers recognised it, even though they didn't know what it meant. Exactly. And then at some point in time, I've got a few ideas as to which brands you know, made this happen, there was no longer any need to do that. It didn't need to be a London Dry, and therefore it gave you carte blanche to make products that weren't really gins anymore. I mean, I've looked into the, the earliest reference I've found to those three words, London Dry Gin, being dated back to... Around the 1930s, and in fact, it was an advert for Gordon's Gym was the first place I've seen that phrase used. Whether whether Gordon's were the true precursors of that, I don't know for sure. But that's, I the, think early, they were. that's the earliest reference I found to it. But that was just a you know that was a, a phrase used in, in advertising. It wasn't a designated protected style of gin. But one of the first things I point out is that it's not a protected geographical status. That doesn't have to be made in London. I would imagine 50% of the consumers think that London judging comes from London. Mm. And of course it doesn't. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that it should. Uh, I think you know, most things that have got protected origin status, like champagne and cognac, uh, they have a protected status because the terroir, the area, influences the flavour and the character of the product. It's a little bit like um, American bar in a way, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah, I guess. Uh, it doesn't have it's to be in America, but yeah. it's significant. It's signifying drinks. of where that style of bar came from. I, I think the first thing... John Doxett, who is quite a famous gin writer of his time, who didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story, he was the first person I sort of explained London dry gin, and he said it was essentially as the drier style became more popular than what had gone before, dry gin just didn't sound as good as London dry gin. And that is a way of them signifying, and at the time the major brands were still here, and it gave them, uh, I, I guess, a USP, something that was quite unique for themselves. And again, whether that's true or not, but it's... It, you know that those brands were there. Now it was the predominant style, and it just sounded better than the non-sweetened gin yeah. that perhaps they were selling in quantities before that. Yeah. Um, probably a good time actually just to say what a London Dry gin should be and what it should taste like. None of the flavours should come from the spirit. None of the flavours should come from the water, and all of the flavours should come from the botanicals. So for that reason, the spirit that we use is essentially as close as we can get to completely colourless, flavourless, odourless, pure ethanol, as is practical through conventional distillation means. Uh, the water we use is, generally speaking, has gone through you know some pretty uh, intense uh, purification processes. So for most London dry gins, the whole story is in the botanicals. And uniquely to London dry gin, the regulations say that those botanicals must be of natural origin. We can't use 
extracts, concentrates, uh, artificial flavorings, basically parts of plants. And juniper forward, right? And juniper, of course, must be the, the predominant mm. flavor. It's also now, the most debatable point, I'd say, though. Well, I was going to say, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> it's I, I, quite I, I, subjective, isn't it? Yeah, well, very, not, not always not subjective. subjective but, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some of the categories, like bourbon, where you know, they talk about corn being the predominant grain, and the mash bill must be made about 51% corn minimum. Um, that's gin. easy enough to do, right? I mean, it's just maths. But, yeah. yeah, for gin, there's no maths or science involved. Regulations can sometimes be helpful because they give you a frame and they allow people not to wander too far left or right of where ideally you want to be. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's actually helpful in this yeah, case. Yeah, that... but what I'm saying is that all of the Juniper 4 gins in the world, like Tanqueray and Gordon's, etc., um, were designated London Dry, then that would be a useful framework for me but of course there are gins being produced in america and lots of different parts of the world that conform yeah. to london dry but don't call themselves london dry because they're attempting to create a new category of gin in their native markets That's true. so what about cause classic cocktails so many of these were uh, gin cocktails were invented in the late 19th century early 20th century and of course called for london dry gin or occasionally old tom gin um so the kind of formula of or Holland's gin. Or Holland's gin, yeah. even, yeah. yeah, when we can talk about that. Um, and the formula for these drinks are based on that Juniper Ford design of gin as it was then. So when we're recreating these classic cocktails, we're not really recreating the drink if we're not using a Juniper Ford gin, right? Um, you could argue that, but I'd also say those cocktails tend to be really sweet. We had a very different palate, I think, back in the, you know, the late 1800s. There was gom in a martini, mm. which, you know, that's authentic if, if you want to say that. But I'd have a heart attack if you, uh, I saw someone pick up the bottle of gom to pop it in my martini afterwards as well so it's like how much do you want to adapt it and i know what you say about gin needing some protection but i also think the door needs to be open for people who aren't there yet i mean tancre um it's, it's my favorite gin but it's very juniper dominant it's a big bold flavor it's probably not the first gin you're going to try you need to warm up tancre is a pretty good kind of time capsule of what gin would have tasted like in the 1830s, the 1840s, when the style that we now know as London Judging was really in its infancy, when it was first becoming uh, noticeably different from the Dutch gin. And shows you we can do less is more sometimes. That Looking at the balance of less flavours can actually give you something, a better result. That's a pretty good segue into the history side of things, though, and you mentioned Holland's gin already. So let's go back to... Well, how far, should we, how far do you want to go back? Do you want to go back to... The early kind of imported gin. 1495. <laughs> <laughs> when gin was how not very nice. Not? I've tried the, I've tried that recipe. <laughs> Let, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how far we'll go back. We'll go back even further than gin. Let's talk about juniper itself. Like why was juniper the ingredient that's used to make this mm. spirit? I mean gin is unique in respect that all the other sort of major spirit categories, be it rum, whiskey, tequila or agave spirits, bourbon. Um, brandy, they're all made from a specific base material that is, um, you know, indigenous to the, the place where the spirit is made and, you know, readily available. So you turn it into something that's alcoholic, like a beer or a wine, and then when the technology of distillation becomes available to you, you distill it and you've captured that thing that you can then drink throughout the seasons. But gin is different, right? Because it's not flavoured by its base material. It is distilled and then redistilled with other ingredients and there's no other spirit that has achieved that level of success and popularity apart from maybe spiced rum you might argue spiced rum flavored vodka yeah yeah i suppose so um but 
they're not speed rail products, right? Like Correct. a genus. Yeah. So I, I think about a lot of those categories were flavoured though back in the day, but then we refined the techniques and made it better and better and better. We no need we didn't need to add those things anymore. Like whiskey was definitely sweetened and definitely had botanicals. Yeah, this is a very good point. I mean, yeah, I've, and I certainly yeah. think it was exactly what you said there, Craig. It was sweetened and flavoured because it wasn't. We weren't very the, good at making the, it. The best spirit <laughs> exactly. wasn't nice on its own. Okay, but, but so, I think for juniper, perhaps it has long been thought to have you know health giving anti plague properties as well. People, you know, the old uh, masks that you saw those plague yeah. doctors wearing with the beaks on the front were like something from the dark crystal with juniper. And in fact, juniper did actually have a legitimate uh, way of curing the plague. It was not curing or preventing the plague. It wasn't quite what the people at the time thought it was. People were burning juniper branches in their houses because they thought that it was the foul air that was causing the, the black death and the plague. It wasn't. As we now know, it was the, the fleas which were, on, which were on the rats which populated the houses. But juniper is, is a great anti-flea agent as well. So it was actually working uh, to, to, to drive off for, you know what was causing the disease even if they didn't entirely understand what it was and so you think that we just kind of learned to love the flavor over time it was trained um because there's it doesn't occur much in cuisine right the only time i ever hear about people using juniper is when they're cooking venison yes yeah, or some dishes. gamey kind and of perhaps dish some scandinavian kind of uh, sure there's yeah, a few yeah, things in like sauerkraut fermented and, yeah, things yeah, yeah. yeah but it's really not very commonplace in the kitchen i mean most kitchens Across the world, bar like you say, Scandinavia would not have a jar of juniper berries knocking around. Ready and away from Europe, you know, you're in America, I think. But I like gin; it's just a Christmas tree. You know, it's not a flavour that the world has learned to love. You're listening to Diageo Bar Academy's new podcast, Bar Chat. Still to come. I once left a job over garnishing a martini. I was like, do you know what? I can always find another job. So it starts out as kind of like many spirits as a medicinal kind of drink. And it's like, well, what are we going to put in this? Well, juniper is as good as candidate as any because we know that it's useful for all sorts of things. There's definitely an overlap. You know, we were using, you know, I've got a book from 1731, Smith on Distilling, which is got recipes for medicines with tempting names like plague water and things like that. <laughs> Double, which, please. Which were basically, <laughs> basically just distilled juniper. Some of them also call for like powdered millipede and things like this. And, uh, and, and you know, all kinds of... They still of, do that in the Caribbean. All, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go to around the Caribbean, there's, each island has their own kind of recipes for like healthy rum infusions. And often you find like very long multiple-legged insects. Well, again, insects but you have no other use for these one things. Of the recipes, <laughs> what else are you going to do with that? One of the recipes in, in one of the books I've got called so scraped lead as an ingredient, which is you know, definitely Delicious. a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's as late as the 1730s, but as far back, I mean, it's in your book, Trish. You've got a, a quote from 1351, I think, uh, of, a, of a Dutchman writing about the intoxicating effects of drinking uh, distilled flavoured ethanol. And um, so these early origin of... of uh, distilled flavored slightly health tonic drinks as they were back then it kind of it started in italy right and then it sort of moved its way up into what it, was then the low countries there's an argument in france as well but italy basically had the best pr because torino was obviously a language school which you know translated things from all over the world and then turned into latin and, and latin so, was the so, educated language salerno was essentially exactly. the world's kind of preeminent and original medical university exactly yeah. and, and it was but the translation school were given these information there is an argument for france as well but that's just better documented. We're, than... we're crediting the the Europeans, of course. The actual process of distillation probably comes from from you know slightly further east. Definitely <laughs> east. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. If we're going to go back that, mm. that far, then we're looking at kind of the Middle East, Iraq, um, stroke Iran was thought to be the kind of original uh, birthplace of the technology required to do distillation. But then during 
the Moorish occupation of, yeah. of Europe, it transitioned as well, because, of course, the Moors occupied a large chunk of the Iberian Peninsula yeah. in southern Italy. And then once the monks got their hands on that information, the monks being, you know, the, the ones at that time which were largely the only people with the ability to read and write. So they were the internet so, for so, quite a long time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very slow bandwidth. <laughs> And they were the ones that disseminated this technology. Because the commonly accepted uh, transition from um, the Low Countries, which sort of includes the Netherlands and Belgium, through to gin becoming a British or specifically London thing is is through the story of Dutch courage. This was a a fairly ill-thought-out military campaign. We sent a a ragtag army of uh, basically mercenaries and conscripts under the stewardship of a man who was trying to win the affections of the Queen at the time to assist the Dutch in their battles against the Spanish. And I think most of these mercenaries would have fairly promptly deserted, but before they had deserted, they had... And, you know, socialised and fought alongside the Dutch, and the Dutch did drink their their their, their local drink, the Geneva or Geneva, um, um, before going into battle. I'm pretty sure that that definitely happened. And when they came back, they probably would have told their friends, you know, this stuff was pretty good. Dutch Geneva would have been a desired commodity again uh, amongst the wealthy classes in those kind of late 1500, early 1600 years. You know, the wealthier classes probably would have been drinking French brandies Brandy, and wines, yeah. depending on whether or not we were at war with France at the time. Not and many gaps there. There was Certainly there. <laughs> there would have been fortified wines coming over from Spain and Portugal again, but, you know, all depending really on whether or not we were at war with any particular country at any given time. Uh, I'm pretty sure that by the time William of Orange took the throne in 1688, that Geneva would have been considered the kind of, you know, the, the blingiest drink of the day. That was when distillation really fell into the hands of English as a people. The common man. Literally the masses. Particularly the, <laughs> particularly the common man, yeah. But what came next was the gin craze, right? I mean, so how did we transition from this kind of like small-scale producer to, you know, an outright um, social disaster? And you know, Well, I think this is probably, again, we can probably compare the internet. The internet is an amazing thing, but when you give it to everybody, some not good things happen around it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And it's exactly the same process. People, it was quite enclosed knowledge in particular places where they had it, and all of a sudden everybody knew how to distill. And undoubtedly some good things happened, but I think... As Jake will allude to, more bad, probably. Opening a Pandora's box. It, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, we, the, the, the means of production were no longer the secrets of, of the monks, and your mate down the street could probably teach you how to do it. These were cottage industries. It wasn't yet the big industrial distilleries. There was 40,000 licensed gin sellers in London by the 1750s. Um, you know, this was a product of social neglect and social decay and these people were drinking this stuff as a means of escape exactly that it was uh, and, and, and you know and, and it was a huge social problem and, and like we just said it accelerated at an incredible rate 1702 we were drinking something like half a million gallons of geneva as we'll call it then a year although most of it wouldn't have been geneva it would have been domestically produced um by 1727 we're drinking five million gallons, so it, it increased tenfold in just twenty-five years. Yeah, and it was a time during of like um, massive uh, immigration as well for London, wasn't well, it? Well, London it was, now became a, a, the biggest city in the world. Exactly, apparently. it was and seen as a kind of place you want to go to in order to you know bring up a family and succeed and get employment and you know. But unfortunately, everyone doesn't. Yeah, exactly, and so people would turn up and realize there wasn't all this opportunity the for them. The streets were not paved with gold. No, right? and then they'd fall into the gutters of of central London and and end up in, an, in a pretty bad place. Yeah. 
course, the most famous street of the gin craze was uh, Gin Lane, right, which was a fictional street depicted by William Hogarth in that very famous etching from 1751. But it's actually a real-life street, right? It's Denmark Street, where all the music shops well, are. Parts of the across. illustration you can still see in London today, the church you can still yeah, see. Yeah, Bloomsbury yeah, Church, is it, in yeah, the background? So, yeah. yeah. Actually, I think, I've got a feeling you can't see it anymore because those big buildings Center have gone point. up. Yeah. yeah. No, no, not Sensepoint. I think it's the Google offices are in the way. Ah, okay. They went up about five years and ago. Those, all that new development that took place around Tottenham Court Road tube station. Yeah, there was a number of uh, artifacts dug up during that time, including like uh, gin sharing cups and lots of old uh, vessels for drinking and storing gin. So it was it was that kind of part of London, uh, Alban, uh, Sevendale, Centrepoint. How did we get ourselves out of this gin craze? Uh, what well, were the steps that I took think, place? I, I, again, it's regulation, isn't it? Regulation can be a good thing. And I think the the stopping the mass production of things that were bad led the good ones to survive. And there, there was a taste for gin left behind. Would, and I, some of the houses we now recognise as the founders of it you know, were part of that. I would say it's a, look, a lucky combination of regulation, yeah. good luck and innovation. Yeah. Perhaps the most significant is the move away from pot distillation to column distillation. So instead of having a rough, harsh kind of moonshine whiskey-like spirit as the basis for a gin, we now have colourless, flavourless, odourless alcohol. And that means that we can start to use the botanical ingredients for their own flavour, their own yeah. aroma. Crucially, we can stop adding so much sugar, indeed stop adding any sugar at all. And that takes place around about between 1830 and 1860 for the gin industry. Um, but like you said as well, we also had government intervention. 1830, the Public House Act was passed, which enabled people to apply for a license to, to sell beer in their homes, but they couldn't sell distilled spirits, they couldn't sell gin. Some 45,500 people applied for these licenses in the first 10 years, creating the public house or the pub as we'd know it today. Uh, it was the beginning of the pub era, the end of the, uh, of the gin palace era, and to an extent we're still in the pub era today. Um, and, you know, there was uh, also, you know, during this time... Uh, a succession of, of, of poor harvests, I think I'm right in saying. That's which, right, yeah. Which, which basically uh, increased the price of grain. And at one point, even the government, there was such a grain shortage, the government passed a law saying that it's forbidden to distill grain. Although I've also heard as well that the, 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 some of the plantation owners in Jamaica were trying to move rum. They had an influence on that as well because they had a product they wanted so to they shift. So they were lobbying for So therefore, mm. you know, we can't use that grain for drink anymore. Mm. We need to keep that for food. And there was a lot I've of wealth that that drink. Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be surprising, yeah. So I mean, a number, a number, of, uh, a number of different... Uh, factors coming together which really create a circumstance whereby it's no longer financially viable for the working classes to produce, consume or sell gin and that led to the birth of the gentleman distillers, some of the companies that are still with us today Charles Tanqueray, 1830 mm -hmm. Gordon, 1769 um, you know, the, the, they were the ones that started making uh, a better quality, tastier not poisonous gin, which is always which, a bonus, which appealed to people from perhaps a slightly wealthier end of society. And how were people drinking it? Uh, you know, what was the, the the perfect serve back then for gin? You would probably be drinking. A lot of people would drink it straight at room um, temperature. At room temperature, yeah. you know, no ice cubes, no refrigeration, no mixers, yeah. straight down the hatch, just for its intoxicating properties. Perhaps if you could afford a beer to wash it down with, you, you could maybe afford a beer. If you looked at uh, a place called The Feathers, which used to stand on a Waterloo Bridge, um, which was probably the biggest Jim Palace stroke beer house of the era. Um, in the in the 1840s, they were selling, I think, 2,000 pints of beer a day, so they're selling a lot of beer, but they're selling 20,000 pints of gin a week. So wow. you know, people were probably drinking gin and beer. Also, well, there was, you know, there was that famous uh, gin-beer mixed drink 
that Dickens wrote about called Pearl, of course, which yeah. is what I named my first I bar. That's a great name for a bar. <laughs> <laughs> which was, I mean, accounts vary, but Dickens mentions it in, uh, I think, the Curios- Old Curiosity Shop. But it was effectively a beer and gin sort of sweetened mixture that sometimes was heated up and served warm in the winter and sometimes... Well, just... the other one from that same area is the Gin Twist, of course, which mm. Dickens also writes uh, about extensively, which was really just... Uh, it was usually sold by the jug and was really... A warm, flat Tom Collins. Essentially, it was it was gin, hot water, lemon, and sugar. And what could it have been but the gin twist, which gave uh, uh, Dickens his most famous character his second name? Gin twist was was certainly the drink du jour at the time when Oliver Twist and uh, those characters were being created. And then we've got the the advent of punches, right? Yeah, you've got uh, Joseph Priestley, who was a very famous chemist, well, learned man, wasn't he? He was a bit of a polymath, to be honest, as well. You know, pretty a pretty all round good egg, really. He really was. It's you, you always give. It's like distillation. We give it to one person who discovered this, but it's generally you're standing on the shoulders of people around you. Of course. And there's a there's a lot of sharing of information then between. You publish your paper, then other people would expand on it, and so even like distillation, you know, we can go. It's an AS Coffee or whoever doing it on. You can actually trace it back through countries as people gone on it. But Joseph Priestley's regarded as the man who, you know, managed to make bubbly water. Mm. Although it was so hard to do, it took several other people to actually do it commercially. Mm. But he realised how to do it. And famously, he leads very famous for its beers. Uh, he would capture CO2 in a, in a bladder uh, above the beer and then use it for his experiments, but looked at a way he could actually try and do it. And, I mean, this kind of paved the way, to some extent, uh, for the gin and tonic, right? And yeah. the, the original gin and tonics were probably not carbonated yeah, drinks. I think, but... I think we're talking like kind of late 1700s, right, yeah. for, for his work in terms of creating... 1760s, yeah. I think, would have been carbonation. 1767 springs to mind. I'm not sure if that's... And we don't really right. see a commercial carbonated bottled tonic water being sold which is really hard to do yeah till probably i'm I, well, 1858 the early south you, you're uh, ruining my segue here jake let's just talk about gin and tonics is the man we know that i think first commercially made uh, uh tonic water which that was 1858 exactly yeah who is also an interesting man quite an entrepreneur that sort of made, also, uh, made a lot of money and disappeared you wonder what went on there <laughs> <laughs> I found another one. I think someone pit her at the same year. So there's yeah. probably different people racing. Again. To, but, because, but of course, you know, that's not the beginning of Tonic's story. No. Um, we can probably go back to, what, 1820, 1828, something like that, when we when we find the troops of the East India Trading Company um, mixing their uh, anti-malarial quinine medicine. Which they were able to do because two French scientists actually isolated quinine before that. Because uh, the history of much of this, we take plants for medicinal benefit, but around about the 1800s is when we first started isolating the act- the active ingredient. So I think morphine came first. I can't remember the German scientist who isolated morphine. So we no longer took milk of the poppy to use a Game of Thrones terminology. <laughs> we actually took the benefit of part. And it's the same thing with quinine. The two French scientists managed to isolate the active ingredient that was going to benefit. What's the deal with the gin and tonic? Why does it work so well? Why, why, why does tonic work better with gin arguably than any other spirit? Um, I, don't, I, I think there's probably a little bit of tradition there, though. I think that the original reason, I, I've always attributed it, whether it's true or not, was that it's very much like lime and rum in the Navy. They wanted you to take the lime for medicinal reasons, and the rum made sure you actually took it as opposed to ignored it. And the gin ration uh, in the British Army was used accordingly, social control, its reward for being a good boy. But that the, the chinchona they were giving you the queen at that time was really, really bitter. It wasn't very pleasant. And I've actually made... Uh, Jake, one of these gin and tonics before we actually make it on the spot with quinine, but 
you know, that was a way they made sure that because if you don't take the quinine every day, you're at risk. Mm. So I think that association was there. And because they had to do it every day, they, they looked to improve it. They added citrus. If they were lucky enough to get their ice in that part of the world. I think if you look at some of the George Orwell books, uh, when, he was, when he was out in India, he talks about how they used to try and create this colder drink impossible well, using really evaporation. Ice arriving around about the same time, 18, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when, when ice really became prevalent in Europe and America in terms of uh, us being able to acquire and use it in our drinks. Um, and certainly, you know, a chilled gin and tonic is nicer than, than a room temperature one, for Definitely. sure. Um, Speaking of which, uh, we have a gin and tonic to try, to taste, um, just because since we're talking about the organoleptic properties and the careful mixture of these two ingredients, tonic water and gin, um, it makes sense to, t- to taste one. So we've got some long glasses. I'm going to... Uh, i tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, Craig, to mix together a few, um, one each. We've got... Uh, We've actually got a canned gin and tonic. Yeah. Uh, that was a special request of yours, wasn't it, Jake? This is Gordon's and tonic in a can. And I, I actually, I'm a big fan of canned gin and tonics for one very good reason, which I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But by all means, Jake, you go first. The gin and tonic in a can, the gin tin, whatever you want to call it, has, has very quickly become a, kind of a, an iconic part of English society. People, you know, if you look on the first day, the first sunny day, if you go into the uh, local kind of uh, supermarket or, uh, or or off license, you know the shelves are instantly stripped. People grab them, take them to the park. I think very quickly the English have not just uh, seen it as a convenient way, but for many people, they probably it's their only source of gin and tonic these days. Um, you know, people people have really fallen for the gin and the tin. I think. And that's why, it's that sound. (laughs) One of the things that I think is uh, great about it as a pre-mixed drink out of a can is that it's a higher carbonation level than you'd normally get when mixing gin and tonic water because, of course, the alcohol in the gin and tonic, the the gin, uh, is not carbonated. And so you're immediately diluting the fizz when you start to mix it with tonic water. Whereas because this is a sealed vessel containing both ingredients which have been carbonated together, you're, you're getting that extra level of carbonation. Um, but going back also to the, the combination of gin and tonic, one of my theories about why gin and tonic go so well together is that when we distill an ingredient, we're really only capturing the aroma of it. What you're losing there is the, the taste com- components of the, of the juniper. So we're losing acidity, astringency, bitterness, sweetness. And tonic water reintroduces a lot of those characteristics back into the gin, especially bitterness and sweetness. And so you're almost kind of deconstructing, reconstructing juniper when you distill it into gin and then reintroduce tonic water back into it. And you're getting more of the juniper berry once the tonic water is added. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I never really thought of it, but that, that, that stacks up to me, yeah, for sure. Well, it's normally more of a debate. Oh, you wanted a longer answer than that, didn't you? <laughs> a longer response. Diageo Bar Academy keeps bar professionals informed, inspired and connected. Sign up to the newsletter at diageobaracademy.com to stay up to date with all the latest news and trends. But for now, let's get back to our chat. Okay, so let's talk about perfect serves for a gin and tonic. Um, you know, does it have to be in a long glass? Importance of ice... Um, the ratio of gin and tonic water. I mean, we, Gordon's have already decided the ratio for us on this one. Um, where do you guys sit on how you would like to have your gin and tonic served? I generally go four to one. Um, lots of ice cubes. You know, this is something uh, that I think the, the, the home mixer gets wrong quite often. You'll see we're using two, three 
ice cubes and i might get this science wrong you trish you'll probably know better than me but uh for me my understanding of it is thermodynamics so two liquids will race to reach a median temperature and ice wants to be a liquid so just one or two ice cubes floating around in a relatively warm glass of tonic will very quickly melt and the water content of the ice cubes will attempt to to equal the temperature of the tonic water if you've got a lot of ice cubes in there then the opposite is going to happen. The tonic water is going to come down to the temperature of the ice. So you're going to end up with less dilution and you're going to end up with a colder drink. Mm, which is one of the reasons why the Copa glass is a reasonably good piece of glassware, at least from a dilution perspective, because you can pack more ice per milliliter of liquid I, in there, right? I wasn't a fan of it at first, but then I saw how much ice you could put in and you, it will actually frost. And that's what won me over to the Copa, the fact that, oh, mm. like, oh that does look good now. Mm. Like, you know, it's such a refreshing. And obviously with effervescent drinks as well, the colder it is, the more carbonation will stay in the drink until it hits your lips, where if it's warm, it's going to escape before you get a chance to So you to should consider it. putting, like, your tonic water in the fridge, definitely. But definitely. even your gin in the fridge. Any glasses, maybe, in the freezer? There you go. Where do you guys stand on garnishing a gin at all? Oh, well, this was my next question anyway, okay. so okay. thank you, Joe. <laughs> yes, so garnishing... Actually, I'm just going to fire it straight back at you. I'm the host. <laughs> yeah, 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 you, 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 you've made a few gin and tonics in your time. How do you garnish yours? I have. Um, I mean, at home. Yeah, I mean, for, at home it tends to be citrus, but I think I, I tend to full. I think, think citrus is probably the best garnish anyway. Um, especially with a London dry gin, I wouldn't really tend to deviate away from citrus very much. For something like Tanqueray, it's a lime wedge. Um, Tanqueray tan, grapefruit. Um, there are other. There are garnishes that I think work, but. Another question I've got written down here is, do you think we're becoming overly fussy with garnishes? I'm starting to see like two, three different products in the gin and tonic as a garnish. And sometimes it looks a little bit like a kind of fruit salad in there, you know? Well, for me, it's the integrity of the gin. Can you tell what gin you're drinking? If you can't, you've kind of gone beyond. I actually drink my gin and tonics without any garnish at home. Mm. Um, when is I that serve, necessity um, or is that just because you've got nothing left? No, I actually prefer, I prefer <laughs> it. With, I, I, you know, if you're using a good gin and a good tonic, then I think that's the best way to, to get a nicely effervescent tonic where you can test the tonic and the gin. Anything else detracts from that, I think. Well, I, I think there's a great argument for not garnishing these kind of drinks. I order my martinis ungarnished now because a martini is like a kind of magnifying glass on the gin maker, right? Definitely. You are hammering, like nailing down into each individual botanical, yeah. assessing their balance and composition with a little bit of vermouth in there. And, you know, you, you, you ask a bartender to put a citrus zest over the top of it, it's like, uh, it's like a machine gun. It's going to ruin the potential balance of that. Yeah, it's like when you judge a cocktail competition and you get the master distiller to judge it and someone turns to them and goes, oh, what I've done is I've infused your products with coffee beans and fennel. And you can see the master distiller, <laughs> you've just ruined it. It's, it's rem- the same thing. I remember yeah. judging a Tanqueray competition once where someone redistilled Tanqueray in a beer can in front of Tom <laughs> Nickel, the master distiller. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine the response. Am I, am I, am I getting a call? Probably not suitable. <laughs> <laughs> to repeat on a, on, a, on a podcast of course so nowadays we've not just got tonic water right there are many different varieties and flavors and you know different skews of tonic water available to uh the consumer and bartender alike do you uh, think are we approaching a point where we need to uh introduce like london dredging regulations for tonic is, <laughs> is quinine is quinine the predominant flavor in aromatic future? quinine should be in it there are brands out there not using quinine and, and actually oh, advertising really? that and oh, they wow. advertise that as that yeah it's no quinine in our tonic i'm at wow. mm, hello <laughs> one great, science geeks out there one great way to check if your uh, tonic water does have quinine in it on a sunny day or in a in a dodgy nightclub hold it up to the sun or the ultraviolet light and if it glows it does have quinine and it quinine is uh, does it glow reactive exactly to, uh, to, to ultraviolet light um so but what, how do we feel about this because i for one thing i quite like the idea that i can personalize a tonic water to a gin you can kind of refine 
the the gin and tonic based on the aromatic profile of the gin and then the aromatic profile of the tonic water. But on the other hand, there are I feel like maybe just too many different combinations of gin and tonic out there now, and it's beginning to get a little bit confusing. You never know if you're fully trying the full spectrum of gin and tonic opportunity out there, and therefore you start to get a little bit lost and confused. I don't know. It's it's for me. It's uh, if it brings people to the category. Not everyone likes tonic. Tonic can be challenging the first time you try it. So if you've got something that has a more approachable flavour, uh, that's a good thing. It brings people in. It's like you know, whenever you first drank wine, no one starts on Bordeaux. Someone probably had some Matthias Rosé or something equally accessible. I also wonder about the word subjective. I think sometimes you use subjective as it's a cop out because it's hard to give a definitive answer. But we've got a uh, we've got a pairing wheel. Uh, which uh, one of my terrible jobs is I have to try every gym with all our mixers and I come up with what I think is the best match. And we always do it. There's always at least three of us so there can be no decision. But we generally agree. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm sure if we had more people in the room, but there's generally a consensus that, yeah, that, that tonic seems to go best with that gin. So I think there is, and it's not always the same tonic as well, and we do try them with all. So I think although it is subjective, I think broadly you can point people in the right direction. And I think that's what customers really want. They want a, they want a, you know, they want a leg up. They want to take advantage of your expertise and how many drinks you've had jake and go what's your favorite gin? how many i'm always asked what's your favorite gin so jake you mentioned uh the copa glass as being kind of quite instrumental in terms of the uh the its effect on gin and tonic consumption and the kind of experiential sort of almost ritualistic um i mean it's come from spain originally hasn't it where it, um you know, so we believe i mean the history as with the history of uh of any cocktail and mixed drink really it's, it's generally a bit muddied and cloudy and murky and it's hard to say anything with, uh, with, with with any definitive kind of answer but my understanding is that uh, and what seems most likely to me was that it really stemmed from Spanish kitchens it was the the chefs wanting to drink either kind of uh, whilst working or towards the end of the shift uh, in you know of course a Spanish kitchen is a hot place to be and uh, <laughs> they started you know the, a regular gin and tonic would, would dilute and melt and become unpalatable very quickly uh, whereas gin and tonic served in a wine glass with you know a lot of ice a decent measure of gin and a decent amount of tonic would, would, would last longer so that's my understanding of where it came from so uh, besides what I was getting at besides the copa what do you view as the kind of key turning points or, or events in the last 15 to 20 years that have really transformed gin, gin into the popular spirit that it is now? Because it was really nowhere, was it? it no, no, absolutely. I mean, the gin and tonic was a big drink. The martini was a big drink, but there was no sort of innovation around it. And I, I generally remember um, as a bartender, uh, sort of late 90s, no, it had been early 2000s, um, making drinks I was making with vodka with gin and it, it, it seems ridiculous but it seemed like an innovative you know it's like wow I can make that with gin and it's still delicious whereas now you know that's not a surprise at all but I think a big part of it is gin now has a sense of place where we had some very well known recognised international brands but local came into it and, and you know it's, it's lovely to try new things when you go to new places I think I think a lot of gins it owes a lot to beer and wine which became better before. Does that make sense? Where people, they started to demand not just a brand, but they're now looking for quality. Uh, and I think that educated people, I especially think of wine. You think of the wine language and the people like Oz Clark and all those sort of people that were around uh, at that point who were educating us that wine was just more than this red, white or rosy, if you were lucky. Uh, uh, and it got better. And we had a language for describing flavour. And I think people started to look for that. And I, I, don't, I don't know if Jake would agree, but like the vodka... We worked. I mean, I used to stand in front of a wall of forty to fifty vodkas, and I genuinely believed they were mostly different, even though they were probably made in about ten different places, and uh, a lot of it was about the brand. Whereas gin, it has a sense of place. It has ingredients you can name that are actually different, and uh, yeah, I, I just think that 
it was uh, it wasn't Emperor's New Clothes. It was there was actually something of a place, of a time, of a flavor that you could definitely identify and make it your own. I think the the kind of renaissance of of cocktail bartending has been a huge part of it as well, right? I mean, we look at books like. Uh, the Savoy cocktail book, for example. Yep. I believe over half of the drinks in that book have gin as their base spirit. Yeah, a third of the drinks in that book are basically just mixtures of gin and vermouth. Yeah. <laughs> on, one, on one or two of them. So riffs on That's martinis and martinis. Is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which we are going to explore in a second because the next thing we're going to talk about is martinis. But, um, yeah, it's that, that resurgence of barcraft where bartenders are starting to think about the ingredients they're using and looking for ingredients that can differentiate themselves from one another or that will meet the requirements of a specific drink. Um, that's been a big thing in gin, right, in, 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 in the for research. For sure, yeah. I mean, you know, right the way through my early bartending career, vodka was the dominant spirit in uh, in, in both kind of mixed drinks and, and cocktails. And I'm not one of those bartenders that hates on vodka. Uh, I think it has its place, but certainly gin provides the bartender with a uh, a, a a wider range of flavors and characteristics and uh, and a more in, intense flavor and characteristics. Okay, let's talk a little bit about martinis. Um, are we uh, going to make one? W- well, you are. I have my spoon. <laughs> okay, Jake has brought his retractable bar spoon. Uh, we have ice. Is that we retractable have... or extendable? I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You say potato? Yeah. <laughs> depends on which exists, I that's guess. true, that's true. Um, I would say extendable, probably, for most of the time. We have a mixing beaker, we have some ice, we have uh, some vermouth and some uh, lovely Tanqueray London dry gin. I'm going to take my uh, my uh, ice scoop here. Yeah. And we're going to measure pretty exactly. How do you like it? What do you reckon? About four to one? Do you like guys like that? I'm I, seven to one. I'm three is, to one. There we go. We all here. have a <laughs> and I'm making them. I'm going to go four to one. <laughs> one's a good middle ground. So let's talk a little bit about ratio, right? Because... Yeah. So we're going to go four to one. Now, I think that's a fairly good middle ground. I like them a little bit wetter. I want to taste a little bit more, more of the vermouth. Some people like just a touch of vermouth, a tiniest little trickle. Um, well, vermouth was seen as a as a bad ingredient, I think, a little bit. When I first started making martinis, we got rid of it all. We poured it away like it was something we didn't want in the drink, did we? And it's delicious. Why were we doing that? I mean, I look but, back on those days, the amount of great vermouth I poured, poured down, down the sink, the sink is, is, a, is a real travesty, really. And I still remember the first time someone said, why don't you put that in a shot glass? And I went, that's a really good idea. Why had I not been putting it on the side? And then we'd give it to the guests. Wonderful, we have glasses. My favourite martini glass. Now... Stirred or shaken? You're stirring these, Jake. Stirring this Stirred. one, yeah. I mean, why would you shake a martin? There's no, no reason to shake it. You would shake a drink which had egg white in it or perhaps, you know... Citrus a, as well. A thicker, orange, a thicker juice or, or some dairy. But the viscosity, the density of, of, of gin and vermouth... You know, it mixes together quite easily. We don't need to to force it together. Well, the reason to shake any drink is because it's fast, right? It's the fastest way of chilling. That that would be, and it makes it colder. It's it very... does make it slightly colder, usually because most people don't stir long enough. Nobody does. No, <laughs> including Jake. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't criticise the man who's making us a martini <laughs> no, no, right true. now. Um, uh, I, did, I probably didn't stir for long enough. Did I? No, that's fine. We're, but we're, no one does. To no. stir a mart- to shake a drink, fifteen seconds is about. You're going to get a really cool drink, and after oh, yeah. 15 seconds, you're really you just wasting like, your time. You guys like your, your martinis lumpy, right? Yes. Well, uh, do you know favorite. what? I, I think there's a good argument for martinis on the rocks because it just allows you to, it, sure, it dilutes it a little bit more, but not as much as people think. And I could definitely give you an argument colder. for martinis on the rocks. Okay, go on. First then. bites with the eye, isn't it? It's the most elegant, beautiful, zen like drink, and by putting that in it, you're, you're, 
Yeah. yeah. No. I'm, I'm too practical. You yeah. are. It's that science kicking in again and ruining all the heart and romanticism of this drink. The, mar- the martini played a, uh, a, a key part in, the, uh, in, in my decision to really um, embrace the, the bartending of life. I remember I was uh, perhaps maybe 20 years old, 21 years old, I was working at a fancy restaurant in Leeds called Rascas, which has long since disappeared. Um, we earned a Michelin star while I was there, actually. Really? Uh, yeah, I did not know that. It was a pretty fancy place. It was the only time in my career that I worked in that type of establishment, really. And I'd kind of blagged my way into this job <laughs> by pretending that I knew about wine, which I didn't at all. <laughs> but I pretended well enough that the uh, that, that the owner was convinced. And uh, You'd have spoken by now. Jake's got great chat, so I, I can imagine about, how that happened. Around this time, uh, the late, great Dick Bradsell uh, was writing, I think, I always forget if it was for GQ magazine or Arena magazine, but whichever it was, it was basically just one page uh, four times a year. Uh, which was back then the only really intelligent drinks writing yeah. available to me. There was before the internet, before Amazon. There was one cocktail book which was widely available yeah. called The Bartender's Cherry, which was really just a list of terrible drinks and ingredients <laughs> with no background history and no methodology or anything like that. No, uh, no, no, no real craft to it. So Dick's page, I would look forward to eagerly every every three months. And I remember he wrote an article about the martini, and he explained exactly what we were just talking about. He said, you know, fill the fill the glass with ice. Pour in, uh, you know, uh, twenty five mils of uh, of vermouth, stir it, and then throw it down the drain. It's the sacrifice. Then yeah. pour in the gin, stir it again, and strain. And uh, and I thought, well, that sounds ridiculous. Um, and I, I was busy drinking Long Island iced teas and sea breezes. <laughs> and, like. um, and then uh, one lunchtime, we had an American visitor in um, who came to the bar after lunch and sat at the bar. And the chef Simon would 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 often after shift wait next to the bar until there was a breaking service to ask me for his traditional uh, post bar beer, a uh, post work beer, and he was he was he was uh, stood there watching. And the, the American guy comes up and he's like, "You guys," he goes, "Kid, make me a martini." And I was like, "Ah, I know how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'd read it two weeks before." So I followed Dick's uh, Dick's kind of guide exactly, and, and and did this discarded vermouth martini and served it to him. And he, and he took a sip of it and, and looked satisfied. And he looked at me and he, and he goes, he goes, kid, you go. He goes, there's, there's two places in England where you can get a good martini. One of them is the Dorchester and the other is right here. You're all right. I mean, that. <laughs> and then I looked, you, at, I looked at the boss and the head chef and he was like, oh, nice one, Jake, with the thumbs up. And I was like, at that point, I thought maybe there's more to this this craft than, 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 than perhaps. Uh, I you bet know, you were floating, though. That's a wonderful compliment to hear, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah man. Yeah. I was over the moon. I think because uh, I had certain pivotal moments in my bar career where I received a compliment at the right time from the right person and it changed your view on being a bartender altogether you're like well there's a craft here to this and you know you could take it as a serious profession and realize there's things that you know that have resulted in you know the guest enjoying that drink and more things that you can learn to improve your craft and and that's really an endless journey, isn't it? It's why we're still sat here doing podcasts. I do remember shortly, shortly after after that, I remember um, going for a drink with my dad. And at this point, you know, the presumption from from myself and my family was that I would, you know, um, you know, throw in the towel on my bartending career at some point and, and go to university and go yeah. to university. And, and you know, I'd, I'd always jumped to becoming a journalist. What's your real job? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember going for a drink with dad and dad going, "Well, you seem to be good at this, and you seem to be enjoying it. So you know, why don't you stick with it?" And at the time, I was like. Great, Dad. I love you for that. Thank you for uh, not putting undue pressure on me to go to uni. And I now realise that he probably just didn't want to pay for me to go to uni. <laughs> <laughs> He's a smart man. <laughs> right, so we've uh, got Jake's martini in front of us. Um, and it's wonderful. Shall we? Yeah, I've, I've just had a little taste. It's delicious. It is a, I think four to one is a great balance. 
Um, the vermouth there. It's, and I often think with martinis, it's about the viscosity as well. There's some, something strange that happens. Even though you're adding water to it, it somehow seems to thicken. It seems oilier, yeah, right? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. Especially with a good gin. Um, what would be your preferred garnishes then, gentlemen? Well, um, generally speaking, I side on the citrus twist. Um, you know, the original martini, really, the earliest recipes you look for, cover a cherry. Um, or even a lemon slice in the 1888 Cherry Thomas, neither of which are suitable garnishes for for a modern day martini. But of course, they were probably making it with you know Holland's gin rather than not, than or, or Old Tom gin and uh, rather than London drinks, yeah. and, and perhaps with a slightly sweeter vermouth. Um, so perhaps the uh, the cherry was not uh, as out of place as it might place. seem now. The olive appears, by my reckoning, in the late 1800s, around about the kind of late 1890s, we start to see people using olives. And that very quickly became the kind of um, de facto garnish for the martini. Uh, I don't mind an olive in my martini. Um, I, I, I firmly side with the uh, the old saying that uh, one is elegant, two is polite, and three is a meal. Um, but uh, generally speaking, I think I'd probably, probably go for the for, for the... The twist of lemon, I think it's uh, those flavors sit a little more comfortably uh, with the flavors of the gin than, than the salinity of an olive does. But of course, you know, it's really just personal opinion for sure. I once left a job over garnishing a martini. Oh, well, how did that happen? Me and Jason Scott. Um, Jace was the boss, and so Jason Scott is the owner, co-owner of uh, the world-famous Bramble Bar in Edinburgh, um, one, of, one of the great bars in the world, and one of my best friends. And uh, when you're and, working and, with your friends, and terrible, right? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> when, when you're working with your friends, someone's the boss and someone isn't. And in my opinion, it was definitely a citrus twist, and in Jason's opinion, it was definitely an olive. And we start, we were having quite an in-depth argument over it. And I was like, do you know what? I can always find another job. I haven't got that many great friends. I think it's time for me to walk. And that's essentially what happened. So arguing about I the martini, that. That's that, was, that, was, that was why we parted ways and we're still great friends today. But uh, I, I was right. As I've said, <laughs> you, were probably, you were probably right. But as I've said to pretty much every baton I ever trained, there, there is, of course, only one correct way to garnish a martini, and that is the way your guest wants it. Mm. Lo- lovely. So... Uh, I want to start dismissive of that answer, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you did, didn't you? <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> no, you think we? You think we should tell our guests? Tristan definitely believes the customer is yeah, not always yeah. right. Yeah, no, that's mm. that's not. That's yeah, not like right. I said, I don't believe in subjectivity. <laughs> I, I t- you're, you're wrong. <laughs> but as bartenders at certain ages, Jake can sort of describe. People weren't ordering that many classic drinks like 15, 20 years ago. So it was really exciting Let me when someone you, ordered a martini. This and was, it was like oh, I feel special. You know, this was something um, I said. Book a long time ago, uh, a book I'm not going to mention for various reasons, uh, but uh, it, 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 the the quote essentially was, um, "Why would you put a, a, a blue cheese stuffed martini in a blue cheese stuffed olive in your martini?" Um, and I, at the time, I was like, "Yeah, why would you? That's stupid." But that seems now to be coming cool again. Yeah, I think that's awful. Right. In the interest of moving this on, sort of final topic of conversation, where do we see the future of gin? Is, the, is this a bubble that's about to burst? What's going to happen next? Uh, well, if I could say what was, would happen next, I'd be owning the, that brand as opposed to telling everybody here. But I guess it's, I think gin has changed forever for the better. You're no longer going to have two or three brands behind the bar. You're always, it's like malt whiskey. When I was a young bartender, we always had about eight or nine malts, even though we didn't sell that much whiskey behind the bar. But we believed that choice was absolutely essential mm-hmm. to give the customer what he wanted. And gin's gone that way. It's not just 
juniper forward London dry now. We have many, many different aspects of gin, be it local, be it made in very different ways, be it the American gins or, you know, lots of things going on. There will always be a dozen gins behind any decent bar, I think, because they are genuinely different. Mm. But, but we're going to see some distilleries close, you think? The smaller... I think, what's the quote? I think 90% of everything is bad. And like, there's always, I mean, as Jake sort of alluded to before, I judge a lot of gin competitions as well. And there's definitely a lot less good gins in that competition than there are bad. Uh, but that's just the way of the world, isn't it? The good will survive and the well-marketed will also survive. There are gins there that uh, do very well that might not be to our taste, but, you know, they will survive. People like them. And I sort of feel they are the gins that perhaps that people they, they like first and then they learn to appreciate the category perhaps in depth like we do it's like the London dry thing again that's not although it's my favourite category probably all our favourite category when we taste it the flavour gins out there for a reason people really really enjoy it and some of them will move on to like a wider range of gin right gentlemen uh, I'm going to start wrapping things up here however there is the quick fire round to deal with question number one the classic question desert island drink Manhattan that doesn't help does it <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I was going to say that. <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs> I don't think there's a better drink. The, the martini is the second best drink. The Manhattan is the best drink. Yep. Good. So the, the kind of inverse to that question, which drink needs burying? Oh, mine's controversial. It's the Negroni. I don't like the Negroni. I think it's <laughs> imbalanced drink. Do we like it just because it's a classic? Put bourbon in there. There's a bit of balance about that drink. Mm. Can I swear? No. Uh, <laughs> Not if you want to make the edit. <laughs> <laughs> Sidecar. <laughs> <laughs> the most overrated of all. Is that wait a second? Is that a twist on a sidecar? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I must say I'm not a big fan of the sidecar. And we've had this discussion before. We have but if you go to Harry's bar, you have to have one. You have to have what's one. What's the worst gin? What's the worst gin cocktail? Oh well, well I've alluded to mine already. Yeah, controversially, I think oh, yeah, the Bronx yeah. is pretty bad, yeah, right? Orange bad, juice yeah. just doesn't seem to work in cocktails very well. But it seems it was quite popular, gin, wasn't but it? But gin and juice is quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing about the Bronx was, I think we we probably make it incorrectly. It's supposed to be a little bit heavy on the orange juice, and it's supposed to be freezing cold. And I think if you tweak the ingredients slightly, you're going to find a slightly better drink. But I've and never had a good. You know what's awful yeah. actually is that a dirty martini is a terrible drink. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind it. It depends on how. <laughs> I mean, some dirty martinis, it's like drinking a jar of olive brine, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is not good. But a little bit of. I mean, you mentioned olives earlier. I think a little bit of salinity in pretty much anything improves it. So I'm, I'm okay with olives. Although, as I mentioned previously, I tend to order martinis ungarnished. And that's usually because I don't know what kind of olive I'm going to get. And that's true. Can I'd I rather have first? no olive than <laughs> mystery olive. Where yeah. do you stand on a vodka martini? Um, I'm not a big fan of vodka martinis. I'm really happy with it. They're not as good as gin. They're not as good as real martinis, but they're all right. Anyway, I'm asking the questions questions here. Okay, Okay, sorry. Uh, Next one, number three, is Desert Island Bar. The bar you... If you've got to only drink in one bar for the rest of your life, which one will it be? Bramble. Bramble in Edinburgh for Craig. Uh, It's tricky. I mean, are we talking about that's currently open or, like, historically? Historically is fine. Oh. The... (laughs) The, the Portobello Star. Oh, which is your former bar, right? My old bar, yeah, which we no longer own. It, going back in history, though, yeah, you drank in one bar. It's got to be Harry's, isn't it? The like Gershwin's that, downstairs, composing American in Paris. A beautiful Hemingway's room. starting a fight in the and, corner. And the history, <laughs> the history runs through the panels of the walls. Fitzgerald's been erudited the bar. I mean... But then Savoy, the American bar Savoy, when Harry true. Craddock's working there, right? I mean, That's some true. Of the story, yeah. Some of the stories that Peter tells from the American bar are, are uh, you know... I probably should wait till you have him as a guest to, to leave him to recite them. But yeah, that, that room has certainly seen some history. Uh, alive or dead, 
person you would most like to do a bar shift with? And it doesn't need to be someone from our industry. It could be any person. <sighs> okay. It's not very quick, is it? We're both really thinking yeah. about this. <laughs> uh, Tom Waits. Oh, nice. Because you get the added music in at that. As yeah, well, we, well, I probably, I probably, I probably check over most of the baton in Tutor's uh, game to play the piano. You'd, you know, you'd riff together on the on the music side of things. I, mean, I right? could probably deliver a song. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go for Muhammad Ali, who didn't actually drink, but he's going to keep everyone entertained while I run about behind him trying to make them drinks, but they won't care. No, <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, wonderful discussion as always. Um, I only feel bad for the listeners that I don't, they don't get to experience this all the time because the chat is always good from you guys. Um, I hope you've had as good a time as I have. Um, we're going to go get some dinner now, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time. <laughs>